how it lights my path, how it guides my way. And that it will, uh, that word will take root and grow fruit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, God is good. And all the time. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. It's really a joy. And I, although I'm normally at Belvedere on a Sunday morning, I actually only live in Catford. So it's quite nice to just walk, walk down here, walk down the road and be part of you in Forest Hill. Um, this morning is a huge blessing for me. And uh, if you don't know me, I'm Lydia. I lead Ichthus Belvedere and also work in the office as well. So we are back into Exodus, and I'm jumping straight into the passage. So we are back in Exodus uh, this week. We had Giving Sunday last Sunday, didn't we? And so then if you remember the week before was when um, Moses asks the people, uh, the Israelites, to give of their own heart and to give the items needed to build the tabernacle. And God's glory, God's presence has been with them as they've left Egypt, as they've left slavery, as they've come. You know, God's been appearing to them as a cloud, as a pillar of fire. God's presence has been with them. And they've known that. They've known God's presence with them. But now they are going to build a house. They're going to build, well, not a house, a tabernacle, a tent. um, Where they can regularly go and meet and God's presence can live. And I really like that verse in Exodus 25. If you have your Bibles, you can open it. And I, um, Walter didn't read the the verses because it's a little bit bitty today, the reading. It isn't one solid chunk. So if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to refer to the different items that are in, in this tabernacle, in the holy place. But just as a way of introduction, I really love um, in Exodus 25, which was two weeks ago's passage, when... God speaks to Moses and he says, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him to give. You will raise my contribution. And, you know, we see right here, right at the beginning of building God's place where he's going to dwell, is that he's asking for people to give as their heart moves them. And then it it tied in beautifully then, didn't it, to last Sunday, which was Giving Sunday, and thinking about the heart with which we give, and we give to God, and we give our overflow. And uh, if you click down for me, Leslie, then the next one, oh, do you have a clicker in Forest Hill? No? Maybe. Doesn't matter. Then I don't have to bother you. But anyway, it just fit in so lovely. I just wanted to remind us, as we think about the tabernacle, that God said to give freely, And that everyone had to give what they had. You know, they didn't give money, did they, in that time? I remember the first time that I ever went to Thailand and I went to a a church in the sort of hill tribes up in the north of Thailand in a Karen village. And when they passed around the offering basket, you know, people put in, like, rice into the offering basket. 
And it's because they don't really deal in money, you know, in these villages. They farm, they are very self-sufficient, they grow their vegetables. And in this kind of Karen village, everyone grows their rice, they grow their vegetables, and they sort of share between them, they exchange. And so they have very little actual, you know, money or credit cards or bank accounts or anything like that. And so when they come to bring their tithe and their offering, they bring their actual food, you know, to give to God and so that is what then the, the, the church leaders or those serving in the church will eat that week. And so it's a similar kind of idea, isn't it? In, in, by the way, it wasn't so much money. It's usually items or it's actual wheat or it's actually the fruit that they've been planting, that they're giving. And so here, to make the tabernacle, um, you know, Moses says, give of your jewelry or precious stones, your gold. You know, people will be removing their own rings, their own items, and they go in together. And it's just such a beautiful demonstration right here in the Old Testament of giving. And, you know, last week you may have had this in Giving Sunday, giving what we give in our hearts, that we decide to give. We don't do it just by law and by, you know, rules and so on, but we give it freely. We give it freely, not reluctantly, but we give it as a cheerful giver. And so after all these people have given their gold, they've given all these things, if you remember, what happens then is that they use it to build the ark. And so I think the next one is a picture of this, this ark of the covenant, and I'm not going to go over it all again, because presumably you thought about this a couple of weeks ago. But this this ark was supposed to symbolize this is where the presence of God would dwell and so you've got these images of the kind of cherubim the angels over the top with their wings and um, you know everything in the tabernacle has hoops and poles so it can be carried and I love that I really love that you know that's the difference isn't it between the tabernacle and then the temple eventually Solomon's temple that's built which is more permanent and you know it's got proper foundations but this tabernacle you know everything is so that they can pick it up and move it they can take it with them and this is because the Israelites were building this and then moving I mean when you look at what the tabernacle was like you think I wonder how long that took you know to pull down and to move around because it was really quite an amazing structure but even the ark of the covenant you know it has these poles it has these hooks to be moved and to be taken along with them and it's because that was very much God's heart as he was tabernacling, as he was spending time with his people. They were all living in tents in the desert. And so God was on the move. You know, God was moving with them. And that's actually our kind of motto this year for 2023 across Ichthus, that all our conferences and our different things, our theme is on the move for Jesus. And it's one of the Ichthus slogans, on the move to reach the world for Jesus. And so very much we see here right from the Old Testament, right as soon as the Israelites are forming, they're forming a nation, they're beginning to set up the kind of worshipping practices in a much more rigid way. But all the time there's the reminders about movement, you know, that everything is to be carried, it's to be moved, it's to be taken with them. And because God is on the move in their lives. And he's on the move in our lives. Amen. He's on the move in your life, in my life. And he wants us to follow him as he moves around and as his presence moves around, that he is with us. And so in the midst of this, you know, the kind of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the, covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was kind of this box. And inside it, 
you had eventually, not at this point, but eventually you have the Ten Commandments and the, the tablets that go in there. You've got Aaron's rod, which is budding, which is like a symbol of resurrection and life. And then you've got a little bit of the manna. Do you remember that from quite a few weeks ago when God's providing manna for them every day? And at this time, he's still providing manna for them in the wilderness, that kind of bread-like flour that they're going to turn into bread and eat every day. And so they're supposed to take in a little bit of this manna and they put it into the Ark of the Covenant as a kind of symbol and a reminder of God's provision daily for the Israelites. And so that lives there in the Ark of the Covenant. And it's a good reminder for us in the midst of, you know, the financial crisis, in the midst of lots and lots of fear and worries about money, that that God's provision, God's manna was there and sustained the Israelites every day for 40 years in the wilderness. And so that's in there as well. And then you've got this kind of lid, this golden lid over the top. And, um, and then you've got the mercy seat between these two um, cherubims that reach out. And the mercy seat was in a sense where God's presence would then come. And we know that in in Leviticus 16.12, it said, the cloud of God's presence. God says, I will appear in the cloud over my mercy seat. And so it's it's a beautiful thing. In a sense, it's empty because God's presence is going to come there live and real, you know. And all of the kind of religions of, around, they build statues of their gods. You know, big statues that, that looks like the shapes of the gods or whatever with lots of heads or different things that would be there. Um, but God is saying, no, no statue for me. <laughs> there's an empty seat. Yes, there's beauty, there's awe, there's gold. There's things that evoke kind of reverence and that show my beauty and my holiness But there's no statue of what I look like because God's presence is going to come. God's presence will be there as the cloud. And when we, Henry and I were serving in Thailand for about four years, and we always used to be amazed because they have these spirit houses that every, most houses have a spirit house. You know, it's like a, a small kind of hut thing or sometimes it's very, glamorous and elegant sometimes it's very simple wooden thing if they're a poor person but in there there would be statues of the different gods that they would um, bow down to or their ancestors and so on and even though buddhism was supposed to be this kind of reaching nothingness and you know there's no god and you know you just find inner peace and so on in the reality is that because there's no jesus there unlike us where we don't have statues but we have jesus a living a living God whose presence is with us. Because in a sense, in Buddhism, it's all very empty. So then they fill it with all these statues and idols and different gods that they worship and ancestral worship. And so they would have all of these, you know, things on their shelf, as it were, lots and lots of different idols. They would, why? They would bow to it when they drive along and they always bow to the spirit houses. And they would bring offerings, they would bring, you know, sometimes they would have Coke there, bottles of Coke and Fanta and things like that, which would be like their offerings to the different gods. And uh, sometimes they would put food and fruit and that kind of thing as kind of offerings. And so they always had to be almost like a a visual thing that they were sort of worshipping. And so that was so 
you know, that I know you guys probably know this, but that was so the culture of the day. You worship a statue. You worship what is there. You worship something that you can see. And so this is just so radical. I mean, this is like, you know, this is just so countercultural because God is saying, no, I will meet with you. The cloud of my presence will meet and will rest there in the mercy seat. And it's a wonderful name, isn't it? The mercy seat where God will come with his mercy. And so where is this holy, amazing presence, this, this cloud that's alive and that's moving? And it's a, sometimes it's a flame of fire and sometimes it's this pillar of cloud. You know, where is this going to rest, this holiness, this God's presence? Where it's going to be on the ark, but then where is the ark going to go? You know, <laughs> and so then, then God begins to unpack this and say, yes, we are going to create a place called the Holy of Holies, and there the Ark of the Covenant will rest. But just before we look at that, just to share a quick story, because this place where then the Ark of the Covenant is going to rest, it's going to rest in the Holy of Holies. I like that name, the Holy of Holies. It's such a, um, what, what's that word? It's, it's a superlative, isn't it? Like the, the Holy of Holies. It's like saying the best of the best or like the worst of the worst or the king of the kings or, you know, like, I don't know what else, the, the yummiest of the yummy or whatever. You know, it's this kind of, it's a superlative. It's a memorable phrase. It's kind of, you know, so the Holy of Holies, this is like saying this is the holiest of the holiest of the holiest place that God's presence is going to rest in the tabernacle and so it's going to rest there and God is going to teach them how to safely come into his presence and how the priests are going to approach God in a safe way because this holy burning presence you know when it comes amongst people like us and all our sin you know without Jesus what's going to happen we die, don't we? Because we can't come into that beautiful burning presence of God's holiness without Jesus. And so we would die or we would get sick. So God has to teach then now his people how to approach his presence, his holiness, how to come into a place of real awe. And we know from 1 Samuel 4 that there was a time when, um, 1 Samuel 4, when Eli, the priest, his sons, they brought out the Ark of the Covenant because they decided it would help them win a battle. Okay, so the Israelites are fighting a battle. And they think, if we can take God's presence into the middle of the battle, then we will win. And it looks like this really amazing kind of, you know, like trusting God that yes, but actually, in a sense, they were then just using God's presence like a statue. They were just saying, let's just, it was almost like a superstitious thing to say, let's take it out with us and then surely the battle will win. And then, of course, what happens? They lose the battle. And so then they lose the Ark of the Covenant. And you can read the story if you want in 1 Samuel 4. But then what happens is the Philistines carry the Ark off. They carry it off. And so then the ark is there and it's in the camp and it's going around. But the awful thing is, actually, everywhere it goes, disease and plague and tumours comes on the people. And it's because they have no idea <laughs> how to cope, how to process, how to approach the holiness of God. Because his holiness, his burning fire, you know, his presence, when compared to our sinfulness, the two just can't go together. Until we see the beauty, you know, until we have Jesus as, 
who goes as the great high priest between. And so actually this it is very serious. When we, when we think about the tabernacle and we think about all the different things that we're going to look at some of them now, the different processes and the different stages that the priests go through, just to give us the context, the reason is because God wants to live with his people. Yes, he wants to be with his people. Yes, but he doesn't want them to die. He doesn't want them to get sick because he is that holy. He is that big. He is that awesome that he knows that we in our sinful you know, our sinful people, that if we come into his presence, we will either die or we will get sick. Okay, this is before Jesus. So we're going to come on to the good news later. But this is a really serious thing. You know, God doesn't want his people to become sick in his presence. He doesn't want that holiness to come and to cause them all tumors and disease and everything that happens in 1 Samuel 4. So what he does is he sets up these five different stations between Exodus 25 and Exodus 30, explains the tabernacle and how the priests are going to approach and come into God's presence, okay? How they're going to come into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant and God's cloud that will fill this tabernacle. And so the first thing that we see, I don't know if you can click it on, this is the whole, this is a bit of a picture of what the tabernacle would have been like. And uh, you can see that, that, you know, this is fundamentally movable, isn't it? This is something that they can, it's got, it's a bit like Revive, you know, you've got the old guy ropes, you know, out there to sort of brace it from the weather. <laughs> you know, you've got the, the big pegs that hold it in there. But, and it is, you know, I'm sure this is a lot harder to pack down than one of these modern tents that we take to Revive with us. But fundamentally, this can be packed up and it can be moved and so you see that you've got the outer core of, this, of the tabernacle and you've got this five-stage process in which the priests then approach the Holy of Holies, how they come into God's holy presence. And so all of these things kind of flow together and I'm just going to talk for a minute or two on each one and then we're going to then look at Jesus and how all of those different kind of five things then lead us and teach us about Jesus and what he does for us and how we approach God's presence. So when you've kind of, when they've built this, what I find so interesting about the description in Exodus 25 to 30 is that it starts right from the heart of it, from the ark. And if you, if you can see from this picture, you've got the whole thing, the outer court, and then you've got the, the altar of the sacrifice out there. You've got the laver that we're going to come to. And then inside there, right in the Holy of Holies, right at the back there, is the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? If you're sat at the back like Sherry, you're probably squinting. Um, but that is the Ark of the Covenant. You can Google it when you get home and have a look. That would be right at the back. And in a way, it's the kind of the center and the heart of it. But Moses, in his description, and God, when he gives him the design of the tabernacle, he starts right at the ark. And then he kind of spreads outwards. And then the final thing that he talks about is the kind of boundary around the outside. And I'm no architect, okay? Look, David's an engineer, so he may be able to tell me. But I th would have thought when you're designing something, you probably don't zoom straight into the sort of kind of detailed bit right at the heart, you probably, first of all, you know, like mark out the edge, you know what I mean? You build the structure, you go, and then you kind of go inwards, you know, to then the kind of final bit in the middle, right? But this is completely the other way around. They start right at the heart, right at the Ark of the Covenant, and then it builds outwards. But 
for the process. So when you read it between Exodus 25 to 30, as I say, it starts at the ark right at the back, and then it builds out and out and out to the outer court. But right now, I'm just going to quickly step us through these five steps that the priests would have gone through. And we're going to start from the entrance here in the east, where the priests would come through there, and they would step into the kind of outer court. Okay, so I'm doing it in reverse to how you read it in Exodus. And you would approach there, and you would go to, and the first thing would be to approach and to give a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice. In the Old Testament, this was like a symbol, a way of kind of um, making atonement for sins, of kind of, you know, showing that there has to be a sacrifice, there has to be death to atone for our sins. So there would be that on the outer altar. And then from there, you would step and the priests would go and wash their hands in a laver. And that would be the second stage. And then they would come into the tent of the tabernacle and the holy place. So first of all, we've got this bronze altar. And uh, the bronze altar was there. You can read about it in Exodus 27.1. The the priests would come to the tabernacle court area. The first thing they would encounter, an animal would be sacrificed to enable the priests to engage in this kind of worship. So, Leslie, you can move us on. And straight away, this makes connections right back to Exodus 12. If you remember, before the Israelites leave Egypt, when they're being brought out of slavery, then they sacrifice the Passover lamb, don't they? And they share that lamb together. And uh, it, so it's a, a kind of a good reminder for the people to say, yes, there's this sacrifice of this lamb. It makes those connections. And so now the priests are doing it as they are entering into the tabernacle. And it reminds them and it reminds the people of the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb that was given. So then the next thing, as I say, is the laver. Um, and you can scroll down. Um, the next thing is the laver. And it's this kind of big basin where they wash their hands. And, you know, it's just a lovely, simple picture of how the priests had to wash their hands. They had to approach with clean hands. And there's lots and lots of beautiful symbolism about that, about approaching God's presence with clean hands and a pure heart. And so this is what the priests would do. And then, as I say, they would then go into the tabernacle, they would go into then the holy place, which is the outer next bit. They would go in there, and then on their right, straight in front of them first, actually, there would be the altar of the incense. And it's another altar, but it's for burning. And I think you can, you can scroll along through these pictures quite quickly. It would be there, and it would be burning incense. It's a lovely thing of that kind of smell that would be rising up. The cloud of the incense would probably then pass over the curtain into the Holy of Holies. And it would go there again. All of these things had the lovely poles because it's a reminder God is on the move. God is coming with us. And then on your right, so in the front of you, you've got the altar of incense. On your right, you've got the bread of the presence. And there's a table that's made there. There's a table made with wood and covered in gold. And there's this kind of beautiful symbolism of bread being there. It's lovely that we took communion today. I think, I think that just fits so well with the passage. Because in this tabernacle, there's bread in there. You know, it's, this isn't bread they're eating. But it's a symbol of God. It's a symbol of God's presence. And it's called the bread of the presence. And it's lovely that the priests were part of producing this bread and preparing it. 
there's so much depth. I don't have time to go into it now, um, but there's lots and lots about the depth of the beauty of the bread. You know, when you think about all the stories through the Old Testament, the way they build to Jesus, and then how Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And all the lovely pictures in the New Testament of him, you know, multiplying the bread and the fish to feed the 5,000 and feed the 4,000 people. The beauty of the fact that then the night before he died, he takes bread and he breaks it. And it's a symbol of his body. And so right here in the tabernacle, we see there's the bread of God's presence. One of my favorite psalms, that's probably most of, lots of our favorite, Psalm 23. In verse 5, it says, I set a table before you in the presence of my enemy. And God wants to dine with us. You know, come dine with me. He wants to dine with us. God wants to sit opposite us, you know, and have a meal. He wants to be in our presence. So the whole thing of this bread, it's symbolizing that God's presence, God wants to wants us to engage with him in that way. And Revelation 3.20, isn't it? It says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. You can bring those up, Leslie. And anyone who opens the door and lets me in, I will dine with them. You know, I will spend time with them. So opening our hearts and letting God in, that's just the beginning. I know we all know this, but that's the beginning, isn't it? When we let, when we open our hearts and let him in. That's the beginning. Then he wants to come in and dwell with us and spend time with us and dine with us, you know, and be in our presence. So there's so much beauty about the bread of the presence. And, you know, Jesus says, doesn't he, I am the bread of life. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when you go in, you've got that altar of incense, you've got the bread of the presence there and all that that symbolizes. And then on the left, you've got the lampstand. And uh, this is my favorite thing, the lampstand. And I think the problem is often we, our image of it is sort of ruined by candles. You know what I mean? We think, oh, it's a nice candlestick. You know, like a little, and even sometimes you see like now in the juice, those little candlesticks that are about, you know, yay high. And they sort of hold, even you can still get the ones that are the seven, you know, like the menorah with the seven things. And you have a little candle in each one. Always in that twee. And you put it on the middle of the table as a little decoration at Christmas or something. You know, that's the kind of thing that we get in our heads. But that is not what the lampstand was like in the tabernacle. Okay, it is huge. It is really big. And it is made of pure gold. Okay, and it is hammered into shape by the very skillful um, people who build them. It is really, really big. You've got that huge thing in the middle. And, you know, there's no wax in sight, people. Like, this is, these are not candles. These are, these are like lamp burners. And so at the top, they, they have oil in them and a wick. And I remember one, one year at Lee Green, when, we, when Henry and I were leading Lee Green, we would do a Christingle every year. You know, like beautiful Christingle with the, with the orange and the, and the candle in. And then one year I thought, you know what? Nah, we're not going to do Christingle this year with a little candle. We are going to make oil lamps. Because, you know, I thought this is much more symbolic of what it was actually, you know, like candles. I'm not really sure they're really biblical. Like, let's get into oil lamps. So I googled, you know, how to make your own oil lamp. 
and we had to get, we had to, everyone had to collect jars of oil. And then we had to get wick, and we chopped up the wick, you know, and then you have to soak the wick in the oil, and then you pour in the oil. And then we, the, the most challenging bit was then on, the, on the, um, the jam jars and things that people collecting, you then have to chisel a crack which that was a lot harder than I thought that would be because you have to get a little slit in it, you know, in the top of the metal. So that was very challenging. But we did it. And, um, and then you sort of stick the wick up. And then we put all nice oranges and all the cloves. So it was like our own version of a Christingle. And then we burnt it. But what was so good that year, because normally then you take home the Christingle and it lasts like a couple of days, and then the candle burnt down and then the orange goes mouldy. Do you know what I mean? And so that it's a bit, it's a bit challenging. It doesn't last the whole Advent, does it? But these things that we made, they lasted and lasted. You know, and then you can even, like, top up the oil. You know what I mean? It's amazing. I was like, this is much better than a Christingle. And so that is the kind of image I want you to have in the head when you think about the, the lampstand. It's not like a little Christingle. This has got oil, you know, that they take the, the olives, they crush it, they put the oil in. It's part of the priestly duties, you know, to trim the wicks, to make sure that these oil lamps are burning. And there's the kind of one central one there, the kind of big central one, and then there's the, the three that come off on each side. And this is so reminiscent, isn't it, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And there's so much beauty in this lampstand. There is so much, you know, that this big lampstand, and it was high. And this is what lit the whole tabernacle. Because inside, because of the curtains and so, it's quite dark. But this is what brings the light. So you've got all the beauty of the symbolism of the light. You've got the beauty of the symbolism of the oil. Do you know what I mean? The oil that the priests are constantly topping up. You've got the beautiful symbolism of the actual buds that come on, the, you know, these are kind of flowers and buds that are on the, um, the branches. They represent kind of um, resurrection. And you, you see the beautiful thing. You, you, it's almost, it looks like, and it resembles a tree. And we're going to come and see, it almost looks and sort of resembles the tree of life. This has got flowers on it and buds. You know, the beauty of this lampstand is incredible. And just coming back to, you know, the oil and the lamps, one of, one of the beautiful things in Zechariah, um, Zechariah, I don't know if you can go through, John 15, 15, that's the beautiful, that's, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. Matthew 5, that's you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, you know, don't put your light under a bowl, but lift it up and put it on a stand so the whole world can see the light. And this is what I mean. This isn't a little piddly candle. This is a huge lampstand. And he's saying, lift it up and let your light shine. Then in Zechariah, you get this beautiful picture of a lampstand. And it's, got, it's this lampstand. It's got the seven kind of lamps, oil lamps burning into the one stand. And what is so amazing about this passage in Zechariah, I don't have time to go into it now. In fact, what is the time? Oh, gosh, I'm running out of time. Okay, so we don't have time to go into it. But the beautiful thing about Zechariah 4, if you go and read that, is there are, here you get these two olive trees. And there's a pipe, you know, that's connecting straight from the olive trees, straight into the lamp. And so this is oil that is continually flowing. You know, symbolically, this is going straight from the olives, straight from the olive trees, and flowing straight into the lampstand. 
And then there's these two, um, there's these two, it says in Zechariah, there's these two um, anointed ones standing beside the tree, you know, and it might symbolize a rubber ball, it might symbolize Joshua, like, you know, people say, what does this symbolize? But the whole point is that this oil is continually coming from these anointed ones straight from the tree. It doesn't even need to be topped up anymore. And God gives Zechariah this picture when Zerubbabel is trying to rebuild the temple and things are going really badly. You know, they are so discouraged. And then God gives them this picture of the two olive trees and the oil going into the lampstand. And um, it's those beautiful, very famous words, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And you just think, that, those words, you probably know, because we use them a lot. We use them a lot in Ichthus, because in Ichthus, we do a lot of things that we feel like, Lord, we can't do this. It's too much for us. But then we're constantly saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, because we want God's spirit to be the thing that is enabling us to work. It's God's spirit that's enabling us to reach out and to bless our neighbors. It's God's spirit that's growing the congregations, that's seeing people healed and transformed. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit. And that is in the context of this lampstand. That's what I want you to remember. That's the Zechariah, they prophesy this in the context of the lampstand, in the context of the oil that is pouring the whole time. And Zerubbabel, he's trying to rebuild the temple when God gives him that image of the two olive trees flowing into the lampstand because God is saying, I, my spirit is the thing that's going to pour and enable you to do that. And, you know, I'm running out of time, but then in Revelation 1.20, which we don't have time to look at today, but again, you see the churches there are represented as lampstands. And Jesus is walking amongst them. And that's what I mean. They're not little candles. You know, Jesus is walking amongst these lampstands. And he's being like that beautiful picture of the priest that's looking. And each of the churches is one of these lampstands. And Jesus is looking. He's trimming the wick. Do you know what I mean? Like that priest. He's looking. Does your, does your wick need a bit of trimming? <laughs> does your oil need topping up in that lampstand? That is what the lampstand symbolizes here in the tabernacle. And then the last thing is behind the tabernacle, uh, behind the lampstand, and, be, and then there's this curtain that takes you into the Holy of Holies. And on this curtain are these big pictures of the cherubim, which are like angels, big pictures of the angels. And they are there, and it's almost like they're guarding the Holy of Holies. Okay, And the priest would only go into the Holy of Holies, where the ark is, one day a year. And he would go in there one day and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And it was a symbol of God's presence. And then God's presence will come and fill it like a cloud. And so in a sense, this holy God, you know, it's being protected by these cherubim. And it's very reminiscent in a way. There's lots about the tabernacle that's quite reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Because you've got the buds, you know, you've got the sort of the tree. The, the lampstand almost looks like the tree of life. You know, and then basically you've got these cherubim, and it's like in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, then in the end God had to send them out of the garden, and then he puts, in, in Genesis 3:24, he puts his cherubim, doesn't he, to guard the way with a flaming torch. And so that's a bit similar here. You've got the cherubim guarding that. 
So that's a bit of a picture of the tabernacle of the different steps that the priest had to take. And what is so amazing now is that helps us to understand what Jesus did. As I said, when, we, when you go through all those different steps, you, know, you do the offering in the outer court, you come, you wash your hands, you come into the holy, you spend ages baking this bread, the bread of the presence, you're burning the altar, you're trimming the wicks, you're pouring the oil in, you're making the lampstand. And then one day a year, the priest prepares himself and goes into the holy of holies. That was the process to come into God's presence. Otherwise, you might die. But then what Jesus did... When Jesus died, Matthew 27, verse 15, the veil is torn, isn't it? And you know, we think of like a little veil, like a sort of bit of chiffon, like, like a veil, like a net curtain over our windows. But that's not what the veil was like. It was that thick, you know, purple, heavy thing with the cherubim on it. That's the veil that tears when Jesus dies on the cross. It's like saying, come on in now. Come into the holy of holies. You can come in. Those cherubim on that thing, they're not needed anymore. The ones that are blocking you from coming into God's presence. The ones that are holding you back with the flame saying, don't come close or you might die. You know, they're gone now. Because this angel, these, these, these curtains with the angel on, they're just ripped now. They're torn. Because Jesus died on the cross. And he says, come on in. And that is the honor. That is the beauty. When we come, when we take this communion, when we come into God's presence, that is what we are doing. You know, we are coming now. We are able to just come as we are. Us, with all our sin. We are able to just come in now. And just to close, let's go to Hebrews. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 9, to the most amazing bit. Are you looking forward to doing Hebrews at um, Revive? We're doing Pursuing the Unshakable. And we're looking at the book of Hebrews, and we're looking particularly at Hebrews 12. But there's so much in the book of Hebrews. And by way of closing, I keep saying that because then you think I am going to finish. By way of closing, <laughs> I will read Hebrews 9, verse 1 to 5. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared. This is what we've been looking at. The, uh, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there's the tabernacle, which is the holy of the holies. Having the golden incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. And then inside that ark, remember, there's a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod and the tablets of the covenant. And above it are the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he goes on. But then if you skip down to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling have been defiled for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
Will that not cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? So there it is. I mean, the more perfect, the living tabernacle now through Christ. He's like that great high priest. He goes through, but rather than sprinkling the goat's blood, it's his own blood. And by doing that, he has enabled, he has ripped the curtain. And so we can go straight through. So when we come into God's presence, you know, it is so incredible. I hope that if nothing else, this has just blown your mind with the kind of glory of the incredibleness of God's beauty and his presence. That as we come in, we come and do that. And then in the next chapter of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, right, we're going to finish with this. <laughs> Keep saying that. Um, but basically, as I was saying, the priests, they're constantly moving around the tabernacle. They've got lots to do. And if you, if you notice, there is no seat. There's no seat anywhere for the priests. They're not allowed to sit down in the Holy of Holies. They are busy, okay? They have to trim the wicks. They have to make the bread. They have to sprinkle the blood. They're going in and out. They've got lots and lots to do. The only seat there is the mercy seat, Okay, there's no seat next to the presence where they sort of sit in God's presence. They are continually moving around. But then, if we look here at Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. So this is what they used to do, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for the sins of all time sat down at the right hand of God. So this is the high priest. Jesus, he can sit down at the right hand of God because he has done it. You know, this priest, he has done it and he can sit down. Unlike the earthly priests that had to constantly be standing and walking and moving around, but God sits down. And in a sense, that's what he's inviting us to do now to sit and to be in his presence, to come through the veil into the holy of holies, into God's presence. So by way of response then this morning, maybe you could click us on to the response. There is basically, I was just thinking, very simple, but maybe God is just saying, draw near to me again. Remember the beauty you know, the incredible awesomeness of what Jesus has done on the cross. That veil is ripped. Draw close to me. Draw near to me. And come deeper. You know, come deeper. Maybe you just bring them all up for me. Let's get deeper into his holiness. Let's come deeper into his holiness. Maybe you got stuck. You know, maybe you're stuck. Like, you got stuck at the laver when you were washing your hands. Sorry, guys. I know I've ever run. You know, maybe you've got stuck and God just wants to say, come back in, come deeper. And then I think the last one, is there one more? No. I was just saying, actually, if you struggle to sit in God's presence, actually just know the price he has paid. That veil is torn. So maybe we'll invite the worship team up and I'll hand over to uh, Walter just to kind of lead us in that response. And I'm just going to pray as we do that. 
Well, Lord, you know I've overrun because there's just so much in this passage. It's just so amazing, the beauty and the richness of what you're teaching your people, what you were teaching your people, what you're still teaching us today. And Lord, I just want to thank you for the beautiful images, for the depth of what you are showing us through this, Lord, through washing our hands at the laver, you know, coming with a pure heart where we step into your presence and actually we maybe need to know the bread of the presence in our lives today. Just God, your presence with us. Thank you we've taken communion and it's been a reminder, that bread. Thank you, you long to be with your people. You long to come in and to dine with us. You want to come in and spend time. You want to eat a meal with us. Not just that we rush a quick prayer, shoot up every day, but you want to spend time with us. Thank you for the bread of your presence. And Lord, the lampstand, Lord, any of us that feel our oil is running low or our wicks need to be trimmed, Lord, help us to burn brightly for you. That beautiful, awe-inspiring lampstand, Lord, thank you. And Lord, the, just the beauty of your presence and what Jesus, what you did, that the, the curtain was torn that we can go into the Holy of Holies. Lord, let us draw near. Let us remember today the beauty of what it means to come into your presence. The honor that we as sinners can now come straight through into the Holy of Holies, into your presence. Amen. Let your name